Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Okay, well, today I have a really special guest, my new friend and fellow adoptive mom, Jelana Goebel. And Jelana is not only an adoptive mom, which I know most of you will find really interesting, but she is also a an author and has a new book out called A Love Stretched Life. And we'll talk about her book, but there are so many other things that we're going to talk about as well. So thank you for being here, Jelana. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Yeah, my pleasure. Can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? I would love to. Uh, there are five children who call me mom. Um, I have two biological daughters and all three of my sons have come to me via the foster care system. My kids range in age from 10 to 25 and life is super full. I work part-time for an organization that I helped to found, which actually partners with our state's child welfare system. So I feel like kind of in this world personally, and also in this world of foster care and adoption professionally and we just got a new kitty yesterday. I mean, I guess that, that can name Clyde. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's perfect. Okay. So I had the privilege of reading your book and honestly loved it. Just wanted to sit and read and read because, you know, it's, it's really beautiful to hear other people's stories of their journey. I mean, this is for all of us becoming foster parents, adoptive parents, this is just really a journey and we grow and change and our children grow and change. And it's, I, it's kind of a miracle. And so I would love for you to just tell everybody, first of all, how you even got into this and then we'll go from there. Well, um, my husband and I worked at an orphanage down in Guatemala and we were really impacted by the kids there. Um, and literally asked the question on the plane, Lisa, where are the vulnerable children here? When we were on the plane from Guatemala, flying to Buffalo, New York, where my husband was going to go to grad school. Um, You know, looking back, I can remember seeing like a poster in the gym and kind of having a hazy impression of what foster care was. But to my knowledge, I'm sure, I'm sure there were people that were impacted by foster care that were around me. But to my knowledge, I didn't know anyone that was in the foster care system or foster parenting. And it was just kind of this hazy concept. kind of sound bites that I would now say are wrong. Like, Oh, what is foster care? Foster care is offering love to a child who's never had love. You know, like those type of things where I can go back and say, Oh gosh, that just totally shows how much I didn't know mm-hmm. at the beginning. Um, but at the ripe old age of 25 with exactly zero parenting experience, someone thought that we would be great, not just as respite parents, which is what we went in for Lisa, but they were like, you know, you would be great as not just foster parents, but therapeutic foster parents, which is the label (laughs) reserved for like kids whose behaviors manifest in high, high um, needs. And so I think Luke, my husband, Luke and I were a little bit like flattered by the invitation and thought, Oh gosh, maybe they see something in us that we don't even see, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, at the ripe old age of 25, we were, we were placed with, um, we were placed with two brothers who were out of a sibling set of 15 and that pretty quickly 
brought me to my knees in terms of like my own myth of like how self-sufficient I was, how I could handle things. It was really kind of my first personal invitation to something that felt beyond what I was equipped to handle. Wow. Okay. Do you think back now and think, what were those caseworkers thinking? Or do you think, wow, they must've been desperate. What do you think? Oh, I think they must've been desperate and probably what were they thinking? But, um, you know, that, that lens, unfortunately, as I share in a love stretch life, the nine-year-old just, we couldn't keep him physically safe. He kept running away. It really conjured up for me some feelings of failure, like Mm -hmm. what, you know, just that whole notion of, grieving almost like this, this has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with like the unjust cards he's been dealt with before he ever walked through my door. Um, and then, you know, having the privilege of parenting a a six-year-old for, for the year. And as I share in a love stretch life, you know, through a series of circumstances, we transitioned him to a pre-adaptive home that fell through. We asked if we could have him back due to the nature of what transpired. The agency said, no, And we were pretty consistent, Lisa, and visiting him uh, regularly at the group home he was placed at when he was eight years old. One day we showed up and we were just told he's been transferred. No warning, no, no official goodbye. I even went as far as to like drive to, to an agency where I thought he might be and left a note for whoever his potential foster parent was. And I just never heard anything. So our story, you know, includes parenting him from age six to seven being in his life from seven to eight and a half. And then all he knows is that one day we did not show up when we said we would, he was transferred. And then we reconnected six years ago when he was 19. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the grief you experienced? I mean, I think, especially for foster parents, we don't often talk about how hard it is to say goodbye. And you didn't even get to say goodbye, which that happens where you get a call and boom, the child is moved. Do you want to talk a tiny bit about that? What that was like for you? Yeah. I just, I remember just feeling like bewildered. Like, how could this be? Like, you know, I, I am the one person that like has been the most consistent person. How can he just kind of be ripped away like that? I do remember feeling that way. And, you know, as recently as um, two summers ago, we welcomed a little girl who is nine years old, just very, very short term. And, um, it wasn't an abrupt goodbye, but it was, it was where, you know, we had said yes for four days and it was mm-hmm. turning into six weeks and we just really needed to hold our boundaries. But as you and I both know, that can be so difficult because who's the one that pays the price for that, you know? So we would have, our family would have drowned if we had kept on, but that meant that this that the sweet little girl was going to go to a hotel um, in the meantime until, and so it's like these, these choices that don't, that just feel impossible. Um, But I think sometimes we're at this intersection where we can't ram ourselves past, you know, where, where we know, uh, cause we're all going to kind of crash and burn. Mm -hmm. And so even when I think about as recently as two years ago, Um, I just remember that grief of feeling like, I know this is what is right for our family. I know this is what we need. We set a very intentional yes for this amount of time. And it's keeping on getting stretched and stretched. And I think because of the crisis, 
in the constant putting out of fires, I think when a child is in a home, it's kind of like, well, they're good. And I'm going to put out these fires over here. And I have a ton of empathy for our partners at child welfare that are just kind of helter skelter everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yet it just felt like we couldn't be taken you know, seriously. So we tried to be as planful as possible, but even with that, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. Nobody wants to, to have boundaries that are going to you know, impact. Um, and I still, you know, she was actually our little, our, our little, our last little girl that we, we have, our hands are more than full, but you know, it's a little bit of a haunting way to go out. Like I'm at peace with it, but, Mm -hmm. but in terms of like feeling like, oh my gosh, the need out there is just so immense. And I think, you know, this particular little girl had a ton of behavioral, ton of behaviors. And yet she's on paper. She was like a virtual twin to my 10 year old Mm -hmm. who also had the same behaviors. And it's just really interesting when you're kind of in the trenches, so to speak, and you actually know how to engage the behaviors, um, which I would have never known how to do. It's like, Oh my gosh, I wish, I wish, uh, I I almost wish I didn't know how to respond to all of this because I do. And I realize how specialized this is. Mm -hmm. And yet, having her would drown us all, you know, long-term. So it just, yeah. those types of choices I think are so prevalent for foster parents of like, you know, looking, zeroing in on the image of what's best for this one child. Yes, this is clearly what's best, but then like zooming out to the other six people in the picture, mm-hmm. that can be really tricky. And I think a lot of foster and adoptive parents um, feel that tension of like, wouldn't it be easy if what was best for one was what was best for all, but that is not the case. I know we have experienced that as well. So, okay. So let's go back. So you had your first two little guys and they moved on. And did you at that point think, wow, that was, that was really hard. I don't know if we want to keep going or were you like, okay, let's go. You know, uh, we were pretty much like, okay, let's go. We had two biological daughters in in New York and we moved to Oregon 15 years ago and our certification was still good. And I made what I thought Lisa was going to be like a purely introductory call, you know, famous <laughs> last words of like, I'm yeah. just calling to get information, tuck it in a file drawer somewhere. No, a week later they were like, we have this, you know, we have this six month old baby boy. Would you be interested in fostering him? And so, um, we did. And it's a very long story, but I share in a love stretch life, just, um, that baby is now 14 and we have, had the privilege of walking alongside his first mom for the last 13 and a half years mm-hmm. through countless ups and downs and twists and turns. Yeah. We actually became, um, not only did we adopt her third child, but then we fostered and returned her fourth child, mm-hmm. not once, but twice. And so I really gained a lot of empathy for those that are foster or adoptive parents via relative and how that's, mm-hmm. that's a different, you know, that's, it's very different to raise your hand, um, to say yes to capacity, yes to open-handed wonder, yes to desire for whomever comes into your house versus being shoulder tapped by the state to say, you have a person um, in your family that needs a foster home and just the exhaustion that can come from not willingly choosing that you want to step in and, and no preparation. I mean, I think kinship parents, you know, foster adoptive parents, they really have a unique circumstance that I think is much harder than those of us who choose it. And I think those of us who choose it, it can still be very hard, but to be kinship and to have not planned it, to have maybe not even thought of it and then have a placement of these children 
and still have the family involved. Lots of voices speaking into what's happening. You know, it's really complicated. And I think it can be very, very hard. It can be beautiful too. Beautiful, redemptive and hard. Yeah. I think there is something there. There is there all the things, but um, there is something that's unique about kind of knowing someone's story very up close and personal when they're involved in child welfare versus kind of welcoming a child and having their um, parent be unknown and kind of the process of getting to know them versus like sitting around the table eight years later, which was what happened in our case where it's Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. we have been around this block many, many times and I am tired and I don't want to be here, you know, but here I am out of dutiful love because we would never say no to this child, you know? So your whole family now you've got two daughters born to you. Is that right? And then three sons. Correct. All adopted. Um, Royal, our oldest, we, I just refer to him as the son of our heart. He did not, I want to be adopted. Um, but he, we are clearly his family and he's our son. And then my two younger boys are, uh, adopted through foster care. And they share a mother. They do not. They do not. Okay. I'm just mixing up this whole story. No, no, no. Before we go there, I want to back up a little bit. So for people who don't know any of your story, tell them who Royal is, because you've referred to him earlier. Let's just fill that in for everybody. Yes, absolutely. Um, Royal is the six-year-old that we first welcomed in foster care. He was our very first placement, and he was the one you know, where we showed up and there was no official goodbye. And then we reconnected with him six years ago when he was a 19-year-old young man. Um, I share a lot of the details of that in A Love Stretched Life, but I think what is so impactful for me about reconnecting with Royal? Well, first of all, Lisa, I kind of one night got this, what you, what I would call like this Holy Spirit slash sixth sense slash mama bear sense of like, where is Royal? And he had a very unusual middle name. And so I just plugged that into Facebook and boom, there he was with, mm-hmm. you know, holding a bottle of hard alcohol with like red bloodshed eyes. And I was like, Ooh, I have a feeling this is maybe not going well for him. Mm-hmm. That's like, what do you say? Mm-hmm. You know, like that, you know, so I kind of backpedaled in my private messenger, like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know if you remember us totally cool. If you don't, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to like pad everything yeah. but to just say, we remember you. Um, you know, we, we have always had your July birthday circled on our calendar and, you know, we still have some photos of you in the house and we just, you know, remember you as such a good kid with a good heart that had a lot of adult stuff to deal with. And the next morning I woke up Lisa and he just wrote, OMG with all these exclamation points, you're still dot, 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 my mom in capital letters. And that was striking one, just because he responded so quickly. And two, he had never called me mom. It was always Miss Jelana. And that was fine. Mm -hmm. We had no other kids in the house. That was appropriate. But that was really what started our, our reconnection journey. But it has certainly been a journey of like bearing witness to what those that have bounced around in a like dysfunctional system have to carry Mm -hmm. and kind of seeing this the negative statistics of of what happens when kids exit foster care without that one caring adult. And we have found that to be true. So we have walked a a pretty wild and woolly journey with him that has included like homelessness and incarceration and, um, move, you know, moving him out. Like there's just, there's just a lot to the story. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, you know, we're, I, 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 every day consider it such a privilege that when he was six years old, Lisa, he did not get a choice and he was, he, who he was placed with. Now he's 25. 
And every day it is his choice who he connects with. And he calls me multiple times a week to check in. We have a good relationship. I just adore him and love his kids. And it's just a crazy journey of how we've reconnected. Um, It's not been easy. I think it's easy to kind of like pretty it up a little bit like, well, reconnected, but there have been some really hard things. And yet I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. You've chosen to be family to each other. Exactly. That's beautiful. And I would add, Royal's story is really interesting throughout the book. And also, he was 100% supportive of his story being in the book. Yes. 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 That's really important to mention, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Both. Thank you for bringing that up, Lisa. Yes. All of my kids um, definitely asked their permission, sat down with them. Um, All of my sons. and, And, you know, like everything, like, the book shares some stories, but I'm also intentional about what stories I'm sharing. And there's a lot that the book doesn't share, right? Yes. So just really trying to be mindful. And um, in fact, I have a little disclaimer at the very beginning of the book. So it was so important to me. Like I would, I would just cringe if any of my kids felt like I was oversharing their story. That would just, mm-hmm. I would never have written the book, you know, to begin with, that would have been full stop. So getting their permission was, was key. Boy, as an author and first as a blogger way back in the day and becoming an author, I, uh, I've i learned that really along the way. When everybody was little and I was just writing to a small number of people, it was one thing. But as time has gone on, I've had to go back and revise things. Even in the final manuscript, I went back and revised things to protect my children's stories and them. And yeah, we have to be careful. And it's not always yeah. easy because we want to share and encourage people. And, you know, this is how hard it was. And this is where we are now. But still, we can't always share. This is how hard it was, because that would be hard for our kids. That would be an overshare. Yeah, exactly. We just have to find the balance. Okay, so Royal, now, tell us, go back and tell us about your two sons now, how they joined your family. So Micah joined our family at six months old, and he never left, although I worked with his beautiful um, first mom, Jennifer, for about two and a half years because the plan was reunification. And she was over at my house this very afternoon. Um, you know, our 14 year old is uh, just delighted to see her, but it's also kind of been the norm. Like he's never known life without her. We have had a lot of ups and downs in our journey, but it all started one day when I showed up to the juvenile courthouse with holding an eight by 10 photograph and just said, are you Jennifer? And she responded, I am. And I just said, well, I'm Jelana and I'm your son's foster mom. And I wanted to give you this. And I held out the photograph and she, um, she just took it and started crying. And I found myself kind of wrapping her up in a hug and saying, I just want to let you know that I'm rooting for you, which Lisa, I had not planned to say that. Mm. Um, it was my first interaction ever with a child welfare involved parent. Um, but in that moment, like that just was so genuine and so true. And I feel like that I'm rooting with for you kind of became the anthem of the next 13 and a half years and, and counting. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's always been easy. It is uh, Micah, my 14 year old's full biological brother that came into care with us, Jennifer's fourth child. And so, yeah, I mean, we, there's, there's so much that could be said yes. about, about that. And then my, my youngest is Charlie and Charlie and Micah have no, um, they're not biologically tied together. And Charlie was our, can you pick up a baby for the weekend? Um, hotline call famous last words. He is turning 11 next month. He never left. And, you know, looking back, there are all these signs, um, of 
maybe something being a little bit different about Charlie, but it wasn't until, you know, two years, he was adopted at age two. And at four, he received a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome. He's he's pretty severely impacted. And that has profoundly put our family on a very different path. And so um, I think just the journey of parenting a neurodiverse child that has needs that are different from my other kids' needs, even my child that came from, you know, a, a background of neglect. So it's put, I mean, I, I we love him and adore him and would, would say yes to him a hundred times over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, so that's, that's my family. And then my girls are um, 18 and a senior in high school and then 15 is sophomore. Um, so everybody's still living at home. You have all kids at home. Uh, the four kids underneath my roof are, are at my home. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is not really the topic of this interview, but you know, FASD, that's a heavy diagnosis for many families. And of course, there are also many children in adoptive and foster families who are not diagnosed. I'm curious how you have sort of dealt with the gap between your expectation and your reality of this diagnosis. You know, that's something that I talk about in a love stretch life, Lisa. I really felt like I was pretty easy breezy about what my family might look like. I never kind of had this like solidified idea of like one day my family will look like this. And so I kind of was like, oh, I'm open, which I didn't realize the the preconceived notions that I did indeed have until I got to the point where I was like, and this is not it. <laughs> you <Yes>. know? <laughs> so, so I think, um, yeah, there's... I think a lot of things came tumbling down like dominoes, kind of the myth of like what you pour in will be what you, you know, the kind of the myth of input and output being equal, the myth of, you know, there will be occasionally hard seasons, but not kind of a lifetime of varying intensity of, of difficulty. The the myth that like love is enough and, you know, all of those things, I think it just all kind of came tumbling down. And at first I was very, very grateful. And I'm still very grateful that we, um, advocated pretty strongly for that diagnosis um, that allows us to um, access, you know, our state's developmental disabilities and different things. Um, however, it was like once, and I was kind of like this detective with this big magnifying glass, you know, he had racked up many different diagnoses, but it all was kind of, yes, fit. It was like a piece of the puzzle, but it didn't kind of show the overall landscape of the puzzle. And it wasn't until I read Diane Malbin's Trying Differently Rather Than Harder that just a light bulb went off and I was like, I, I took it back to a team of professionals and very respectfully said, please prove to me that he doesn't have this because we are hitting every single mark here. And they said, he does. Wow. So very quickly, I felt like relieved, almost like I solved it, you know, kind of all those late night journal, you know, medical article, all the things that you do when you are on the hunt to, to figure out how can I help and how can I advocate for my child? And then very quickly after that, Lisa was kind of this black spiral of grief of like, oh my goodness, my precious son is, you know, going to be climbing mountains daily for things. That's just like walking on a smooth sidewalk for most of us, you know, and just the, the, um, realization that this is not seasonal and yes, there are gains and there are strengths and, oh my gosh, you know, Charlie's sense of humor and his, um, his creativity. And there's just, there's so many strengths that he has. Mm -hmm. And also, his invisible brain-based disability makes him a prickly porcupine, pretty darn prickly most of the time. 
<laughs> and, and to just recognize, you know, that's not the essence of who he is. And yet giving cognitive assent to the fact that Charlie has fetal alcohol syndrome does not take away the real physical effects. It can be from parenting a child where your own body is in fight or flight oftentimes because of the hypervigilance that's required to like read the room at all times and be scanning for things that nobody else would even think to look for, you know, unless you know your child. And I think all of us know, know what those particulars are for our kids the where like we can see it and we can feel it before others can. Um, And that's, and so I think, you know, giving cognitive assent to like, it's not his fault. This is not, you know, this is not how he's necessarily wanting to be yet doesn't take away. I think the, the very real effects um, of parenting him. And I think that's something that I've had to really be honest with my counselor about um, because I just, because it's, it's hard to hold those things in tension, right? Like we're still human with like, we don't have unlimited capacity to just absorb and absorb and absorb. We do the best we can. And yet I think it would be impossible to just say, but it doesn't affect me. I mean, as much as I can, I try not to tether my wagon of well-being to Charlie. I try not to hitch it totally, but it is impossible for the waves that are created not to affect me in some way. And I think that's just the reality for any family that has a child, a child that can be unpredictable and volatile and difficult. You know, you said something that often parents do not want to speak aloud. And that is that when we have a child who's particularly challenging, often through no fault of their own because of their history, their brains, but really challenging, and they may have challenging behaviors, our nervous systems are very sensitive to that. And we often think of our kids going into fight, flight, freeze, whatever. Um, But actually it happens to us too. And the advantage we have is we can learn to recognize it and we can learn to say, wow, I am feeling really dysregulated. I'm feeling like I don't know quite how to manage this child right now. Like to be able to say it and we can learn tools and things to help us re-regulate. But it doesn't change the fact that sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's our, in the moment, it may not even be particularly frightening, but I know my brain runs to the future and it's running with fear on its heels. Yes, Lisa. What is going to happen? Where are we going to be? What's going to be next? What's going to happen when he's 16, 20, 22, you know? Yes, I do know. And I think that part of the inverted gift of Charlie is that it is really, I don't want to say taught me because that's going to sound like I somehow arrived. And I think this is just Mm -hmm. like a daily discipline for me because rarely do we have days with Charlie that are comprised of like good or bad. It's just a constant intermingling between we're in a safe moment and now we're in an unsafe moment. Um, But it's taught me to, to um, celebrate things that with my other children, I really mistook as like a low level behavioral expectation. You know, I was with my other three kids, I was never like, no swearing today, high five, you know, staying buckled, let's celebrate, you know, all the, all the things that those are things that, you know, I just, I'm just learning to, to appreciate when they do happen instead of just making it like, well, that's how every kid should be. And so I'm not going to celebrate or praise that because that is just the the expectation. And I think it's a, it's a game changer parenting a child with a brain-based disability. It really is. Yes. What would you say? I mean, I know, like me, you have learned so much. I mean, 
who knew what it was going to require of us in terms of what we were going to need to learn. And I know so many of you listening are nodding your head saying, oh my goodness, I've had to learn so much. Yeah. But overall, if you had to choose one way that you've been changed by your experience of being a foster and adoptive mom, something that you've learned that you didn't really know before, what would it be? Well, I would first say, I think it's like, God's grace that I didn't get a future glimpse into some of the moments that my life has held because I, I, well, I, I embrace, you know, how life is for me. I think there are um, times where I just wouldn't have even understood at that time what I was seeing and what it would require of me. Um, I think Lisa, when I think about like the privilege of being a foster and adoptive parent, I really believe that I have been changed through proximity to people who are different from me. I have been changed by, you know, having a a front row seat to loving a young man that's bounced around in foster care. I've been changed by 13 and a half years of walking alongside Jennifer and, and not walking alongside her. I want to be very clear and her walking alongside me and us kind of developing a, a mutual kinship almost um, claiming one another as family. I'm not the same person I would have been had she not been in my life. I think so oftentimes it is easy to stand at a distance and to look at a situation or a person and to believe we know, and we are seeing with clear eyes, what's going on here. But I think foster care has continually extended me an invitation to, to walk a little closer and to realize um, it's often not clear black and white. There's a lot of gray and um, there's, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of reasons behind the why of people's behaviors. Um, and that just doesn't come, you know, in a vacuum. So, and then of course, with my dear Charlie, I think recognizing that previously, previously to parenting Charlie, if I'd seen a child that acted in public the way my child now often does, I would have made assumptions about what is or is not happening in that household, likely to have a child that is um, acting like that quite so, you know, so dysregulated and it's humbling. That child is now my child. And we have had him since he was 48 hours old. He has been in a loving home that has just provided, you know, all all the right kind of, I don't want to say all the right, but you know, just that, that concoction of like love, discipline, nurture, faith, you know, that we so want to believe there's some perfect formula, but those of us that have walked this road now. There's, you know, there's not, there's not like a perfect concoction to say, and this will somehow bypass all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think I just have an awareness that, you know, I'm only seeing a sliver of the story and that we can't peek inside people's brains and see, even if they look typical and are talking in a typical manner, it could just be forever altered from trauma and in utero substance exposure. So I really count it as a gift in a lot of ways, because I think it has moved me closer to people in situations that without foster care and without adoption, I would have um, never encountered. Absolutely. I feel the same. Would you say that that's true? Like for your teen daughters, do you think that they've been shaped and changed by this? They have been shaped and changed. Absolutely. And I, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat, like it's been hard and it's still hard and they have been shaped and changed in ways, both positively and negatively. And yet they have an awareness on the positive side. They have an awareness that I did not have at 15 and 18 uh, about others and about 
acknowledging that there could be so much more than meets the eye that's going on. And so I just feel like it really has influenced them to be very compassionate. And yet the same exhaustion that I talked about previously in the weariness um, of just kind of the, the relentlessness of feeling like, oh my gosh, and, and trying to train ourselves to not sprint. I could totally relate to what you were saying about like kind of that fear marathon of like, oh my gosh, if we're doing this now, then how is it going to look X, Y, and Z, you know, all these things. But again, I feel like that's part of the gift uh, of Charlie is for me. And it's, it's such a discipline because I am very like future oriented with like, well, how is this going to look? I want to plan for this. And a, a lot of the things that I kind of thought would be so, you know, solidified or kind of like, this is the plan. Um, it's, it's very, very up in the air from mm-hmm. schooling to living situations to, to all of these things. Um, just the things that we are engaging now is something that I couldn't have ever anticipated. And yet my three kids, older kids that live at home really do, even in the midst of the exasperation, even in the midst of, you know, none of us handled anything perfectly all the time. They really do rally around their younger brother. And that is something that, you know, when a child has a very difficult time making friends, when a child um, has a very difficult time, even, even talking with other people, you know, when you see your kids offering a glimpse of friendship, there's just like such silky grace to all of that, you know? And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of them for that. At the same time, Lisa, I don't want your listeners to be like, wow, there's some sort of Hallmark family that like all rally around. We have our moments. Like, let me say we have our moments, um, where we all, you know, just need to kind of cry and take a walk and blow off steam and pray and, um, talk with a counselor, talk with a friend, and then wash our face, rinse, repeat, right? You know, it's just kind of what we all need to do to stay afloat so that we we don't um, drown in the midst of really heavy, significant needs. Now, I think for those of you listening, you are hearing some of your own life repeated here that we are so changed by the experience of parenting and loving these children. I, I mean, I'm not the person I was before at all. And, and sometimes I miss my old life. I mean, I'll just be honest. I was just going to say, do you miss her? Yes. Yeah, I do. Let me just be honest. But in other ways, I think, wow, what a journey the Lord is taking us on and continue. It's not over. I mean, we're in the thick of it still. Right. And I am quite confident that he is writing this story, you know, and that I just get to walk in as much obedience and grace and love and open heartedness as I can, you know, so, well. We could talk for hours and hours and maybe we will. We actually live in the same part of the country. Nobody ever lives near me when I, almost everybody, it seems like I interview or meet at conferences and stuff. They live so, so far away from me. So we're, we're almost neighbors. Our we're states, almost neighbors. Our states touch each other. Anyways. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah. Um, so really, I want to encourage everyone to read A Love Stretch Life. It is a beautiful book. You will be encouraged. You will learn things. It's just a wonderful book. And Jelana, you also mentioned trying differently rather than harder. Is is the author Diane Malbin? Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And we'll have both those books in the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening while you're driving your car or washing your dishes, don't worry about it. You can go to our our website and find the show notes there. But thank you so much, Jelana. If anybody wants to find you, what's the easiest way? Are you on Instagram or any socials? I am. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and I, they can find me at jelana-govel.com. I would love to connect with folks. And let's spell, why don't you go ahead and spell your first name? Spell the whole thing. All right. 
J-I-L-L-A-N-A-G-O-B-L-E.com. So jelanagobel.com. Wonderful. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at postadoptionresources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.